The cup Jesus drank. In Gethsemane, the Holy Spirit tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful, troubled, deeply distressed. In Gethsemane, Jesus would say, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Let this cup pass from me unless I drink it. Being in agony, his sweat became like great drops of blood. As we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of this event in the life of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, why is Jesus so upset? Jesus is exceedingly sorrowful even to death because He is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. In chapter 18, verse 11, as He is now prepared to go to the cross, He asks the question, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me. I want us to think for a few minutes this morning about how the cup from, from the beginning through the book of Revelation is used by God to communicate, is used as a common metaphor for suffering. And more specifically and especially, suffering that is caused by God's wrath. And so Job, in the days of the patriarchs, would speak of the cup of God's wrath. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. A Psalm of David, Psalm 11, verse 6. David, the man after God's own heart, would say, Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup, the enemies of the true and living God. Psalm 75, verse 8, a, a psalm of Asaph. In the hand of Yahweh there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. The prophet Isaiah would speak of Jerusalem the city of David, the city of, of God. You who have drunk at the hand of Yahweh the cup of His fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out, the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. The prophet Jeremiah would speak of the nations on behalf of the true and living God, and he would say, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause to drink it. Jesus in Luke, the 12th chapter, and in verse 50, would speak of baptism. And baptism, by definition, involves immersion. It involves submergence, and it involves emergence. In Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus would say, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am 
till it is accomplished. In Matthew chapter 20 and in Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of thunder, and their mom, they, they come to Jesus and they're interested in some, some chief seats. When he comes into his kingdom, they're, they're, they're interested in, in having some cabinet level positions. Once Jesus begins his reign as the king of kings and Jesus says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? In the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus asked that question in John chapter 18, verse 11, he prays three times, and, and he prays the same prayer three times. And in, and in this prayer that he prays, he addresses our God and Father with a tender, personal address. Abba, Father. Take this cup away from me. He prays that prayer three times. And our Father in heaven, in a word's response to his request, was a simple no. And after Jesus had prayed that prayer three times and he had received his no, that he turns his attention to the apostles and he says, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given May arise and let us be going. In the book of Revelation, we read about the worshipers of the beast and the worshipers of the beast image. And in chapter 14, verse 10, we read that they are going to drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is going to be poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And the result will be torment with fire and with brimstone. In chapter 16, verse 19, Babylon, this city that represents all that is not of God. The cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath is coming for Babylon. The woman of Revelation 17, 14. There, there is a woman who is described as having a golden cup, and her golden cup is full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. 18 verse 6 speaks of the cup in which she has mixed. And so in response to Babylon and, and this woman and her cup, Jesus is seen in Revelation 19, 15 in His exalted position as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And He Himself is treading the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. What is the cup that, that Jesus drank? From Genesis to Revelation, from the days of the patriarchs, from Job until the book of Revelation... The cup is used by God to, to, to serve as a metaphor for suffering, and specifically the suffering that is caused as a result of God's wrath being poured out. And so when we put all of the symbolism together, what, what we see in this, in this cup that is likened to the cup of the woman of Revelation who has filled her cup with all sorts of 
awful, wicked, sinful things. The cup that Jesus is preparing Himself to drink in the Garden of Gethsemane is a cup in which every sin, every sin that everyone who has ever been created in the image of God, yours and mine, every sin is like a drop into that cup. And the book of Romans would communicate to us in the first three chapters, and then this point is driven home in chapter 6, verse 23, that I am responsible for drops in this cup. I have sinned, you have sinned, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death. Every sin is like a drop in the cup. We pour the sin in, and Jesus is preparing Himself to drink it. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. What did Jesus say after He entered into the darkness for three hours and He drank the cup of God's wrath? He said, it is finished. And to use the language of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, He drank it all. He drank it down to the dregs. He drank it dry. And when he was finished, he, he simply said, it, it, it is finished. Paid in full. God's wrath, stored up beginning with Adam's sin and extending to all of your sin and to the sin of the end of the world, was poured out on Christ on the cross. He, he drank the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Galatians 3, verse 13, Jesus became a curse for us, so that we might receive a blessing, that we might be blessed, that we might be a blessing to others. And so as we think about the cup that, that Jesus drank, one, one of the terms that God would have us to come to terms with is His wrath. And what we need to understand about God's wrath is it's not this impersonal process of cause and effect. It's not a passionate, arbitrary, or, or indictive outburst of temper. Of, of all the works of the flesh, I'm, I'm probably the best at the outburst of, of wrath. That's not what this is. God's wrath is, is not cause and effect, passionate, arbitrary, vindictive, it's His settled, determined response to sin. It's His settled, determined response to wickedness and unrighteousness and evil. His wrath is His holy and uncompromising antagonism to evil with which He refuses to negotiate. His wrath is His holy hostility to evil. His wrath is His refusal to condone it, to ignore it, to remain indifferent to it, or to come to terms with it. And I'll tell you one of the fundamental differences between the true and living God who is holy, 
who determined before time again what his posture was going to be toward sin. One of the differences between him and us is he doesn't laugh at sin. He doesn't take a sin and call it good. He doesn't take a sin and build a 30-minute sitcom around it and sit back and laugh at it. We need to come to terms with both the goodness and the severity of God. Why is Jesus so upset in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because he is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. There are others who do not know the true and living God, who do not look at Jesus, and when you try to, to reason with them concerning sin and, and evil and wickedness, inevitably someone will say, well, you know what? God ought to do something about all of this evil. And I'm here to tell you this morning, He did! At Calvary. He judged your sins and mine at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Why is He there? He is there because of my sin. We need to come to terms with God's wrath. And another term that we need to come to terms with is propitiation. Propitiation is... A fascinating word. It, it, is, it is so layered. There are so many layers to, to understand when it comes to the, to the concept of propitiation as God has revealed it to us in His Word. We talk about peeling back the layers of an onion. This, this propitiation, it's, it's, it's a big onion. And it has lots of layers. And as we think about propitiation, there are just a number of things that we need to think about. When we think about the word image of propitiation, there are a number of things that we need to see. And so the word propitiation, it has to do with appeasing, it has to do with placating, it has to do with sacrifice. It's the act of making amends for wrongdoing, atonement, a means by which sin is covered and remitted, satisfaction of the holiness and justice and, and wrath of God, Romans 3.25, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood, speaking of Jesus. 1 John 2.2, speaking of Jesus, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God. You see that this morning? In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And here's how we can know that He loved us. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When you look at the world in which we live and human history, and even today, there, there, are, there are religions all over the world in which worshipers seek to appease their gods through sacrifice, whether it's through sweets or, or vegetables or some other type of offering or, or sacrifice, in truth, the true and living God appeases 
Himself, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood. The only begotten God, the only begotten Son of God, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And this is love, not that we love God and we put together some sort of plan of salvation that was acceptable to God, and God said, I'll tell you what, I like that idea, let's do that. No! Before time began, the book of Revelation speaks of the everlasting gospel, the eternal gospel. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There used to be an infomercial for these knives, and, and at this point in the infomercial it would say, but that's not all. And so when it comes to propitiation, beloved, that's not all. There's more. The word propitiation is sometimes translated the mercy seat. Well, what is the mercy seat? And why is that word sometimes translated with those words? Because the mercy seat, by definition, it, it was the cover. It, it, it was the lid to the box that was the Ark of the Covenant. And the mercy seat, the, the, the cover, the lid of the, of the box of the Ark of the Covenant is where the high priest, the God-appointed, set-apart, chosen high priest would sprinkle the blood of the slaughtered animal on the Day of Atonement. And so when you read in your Bible about the mercy seat and the Ark of, the, of Atonement, what you need to think is locality. What you need to think about is place. There was one box. There was one ark. There was one mercy seat. There was one cover lid that sat on the, on the box that was the ark of the covenant. Christ Himself. Christ Himself. is our mercy seat. He is the personal means by whom God shows mercy to the sinner who believes. Who are we? We are the people of God. For such a time as this, in 2022, and as the people of God for such a time as this, what do we preach. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach the person and the work of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What did He do? Why did He do it? Beloved, He's not just the place where God makes propitiation for our sins. He's not just the sacrifice. He Himself is the great high priest who offers Himself upon the altar. Christ and Him crucified is who we are. And that is the message that we must preach if we are in our generation, in our time, to turn our world upside down.
What, what have we done together this morning? Well, we, we drank a cup together. And the cup that we drank together, it's, it's referred to by the Holy Spirit as the cup of blessing, the cup of the Lord. As Jesus would say in the Gospels, and as it's repeated in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, this, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. We, we drink the cup of blessing. We drink the cup of blessing. Because He drank the cup of wrath. What is it like to drink the cup of wrath? Because of Him, I never have to know. What is it like to drink the cup of God's wrath? I know He poured His heart out in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point that He was sweating as it was sweat drops of blood. Earnest. Pleading. Not, not with... Not with his God in heaven, not with his not with his Father in heaven. But he used the Aramaic equivalent to, of dad. Dad. If there's any way, if there's any other way than me, than me drinking this cup, if is there's any other way, please. And when he was done praying, he arose. And he went to Calvary and he drank the cup of God's wrath dry down to the dregs. And he did that so that you and me could gather together in this place and drink the cup of blessing, to drink his cup, to drink the cup of the new covenant. But he also did that so that we don't ever have to experience what it's like to taste the wrath of God. I want us to read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And as we read this text together, I want you to think about the question... On the day of judgment, will, will you drink? Or will you allow Jesus to drink at Calvary? And so when you put all this together, what you see is that Jesus died for all. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. But Jesus never intended for us to understand all this as universalism. Jesus never understood never intended us for, to understand that, that just because He died on the cross, that that means that, that everybody's sins are automatically forgiven. And so Jesus died for all. That language is clear throughout the New Covenant. He gave His life as a, as a, as a ransom. He shed, he shed His blood. But only those who believe will experience and receive the blessing of His sacrifice. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all. Notice this. Who believe through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by the grace that is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by His blood. Notice this, verse 25, through faith. To demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so, Jesus died for all. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. But only those who believe will receive the blessing of His sacrifice. That's why He uses the language in Matthew and Mark, I have given my life as a ransom for many. Because as Isaiah would, would, would foretell, there were going to be so few who believed that the, the natural question from heaven was just simply going to be, who has believed our report? I mean, it's just unbelievable that so few people are believing because God has revealed Himself in creation, He's revealed Himself in His Word, and He has revealed Himself in a very special way in the person and the work of Jesus. So who has believed our report? It's amazing that so few believe and so the many, the many that are going to benefit from his, from his sacrifices, his life for a ransom, are those who believe. He shed his blood for many. The, the many consist of those who believe, Romans 3, 21 through 26. And so in John's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 36, this is John the Baptist talking, and he's talking about Jesus. And the ESV translation is the best translation of John 3, verse 36, because there are two different words, and they mean two different things. And so John the Baptist, the forerunner of Yahweh, the forerunner of Jehovah, the forerunner of the Lord, the forerunner of Jesus, would say of Emmanuel, God with us, that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son... Two different words, two different meanings. What is God's will for you in Christ Jesus that you would believe and obey? Even the demons believe and tremble, but they don't obey to the glory of God. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Notice what John the Baptist says in John 3, verse 36. Those who don't believe and obey the Son, what abides on them? The wrath of God abides on them. When Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and He died, they buried Him. On the third day He arose, and some 40 days later He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. But that's not all. He's coming again. And when He comes again, he, he, He's not coming like, like He came the first time. He, he's not coming in humility. He's not coming into the world the same way that you and I came into the world. He, he's not coming a second time through a woman. He, he was born of a woman, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, but He's not coming through a woman the second time around. And He's not coming around the second time presenting Himself in a humble way. He's not going to be riding up in here again on a, on a donkey, on, on a lowly servant animal, 
When Jesus comes again, He's coming in all of His glory with all of His holy angels with Him. And He is going to take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those that have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And before the Spirit revealed that to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, He encouraged them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and in verses 9 and 10, He says to them, Listen, because of your obedience to the gospel, because you have turned from idols to serve the true and the living God, here's what Jesus is going to do for you when He comes again that second time. He's going to deliver you. He's going to deliver you from the wrath to come. Romans 5 is a special chapter of those of us who are in Christ as well it should be. But I want you to see in verse 9 that when we think about what God has demonstrated for us in Christ Jesus, chapter 5, verse 8, that we got a great little sermon title in 5.9, much more than. I like sermon titles. This is a good one. Much more than. Boy, you can make some really great comparison contrast between a lot of different things as God in times past and what God has done in Christ, much more than having now been justified by His blood, present tense. We stand in grace as a result of having received grace. But that's not all. When Jesus comes again in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that did not know God and haven't obeyed His gospel, you and I have nothing to worry about if we are in Him because we are going to be saved from wrath through Him. If you're a Christian this morning, you need to hide 1 Thessalonians 5.9 in your heart. God didn't save you in Christ just so that He could pour His wrath out on you. God did not appoint us. And whoever the us is, that's where you want to be. You, in your life, you're going to be excluded from a lot of us's. But the only thing that's going to exclude you from this us is you. You want to be in that us right there? The only thing that's between you and that is you. You got to get out of your way. And you got to let him do that for you. Some of you knew my grandparents, my dad's parents, my Aunt Rebecca's parents. She might not want you to know this, but my Aunt Rebecca, Herring, is my dad's sister. That's, that's my aunt over there. And some of you knew uh, my grandparents, James and Jane. And I I'll tell you, I, I, I never knew them to have very much. They lived very modestly. I never knew them to, to spend money on anything. And I was at their house one day when I was a little kid. And my grandfather liked to get the Birmingham News and sit in his chair and read that paper. And he called me over there to him one day, and there was a there was a, a, a commemorative coin that was being advertised in the Birmingham News that was com commemorating the football game, the Iron Bowl. And I don't remember all the details about it, but I still have the coin. And my grandfather called me over and he, he, he cut that ad out of the paper and he, and he handed it to me and he said, I, I, want, you to, I want you to have this coin 
grandma is gonna is gonna drive you over there and, and I'm gonna get this coin for you. I want you to have that. Well I looked at the price of it and it, it really wasn't expensive, but to me it was it was too much. And so I said to him, No, I I don't I don't need that. And he said, Well I didn't say you needed. He said I wanted you to have it. And I said, Well I'm not gonna ask grandma to do that. He said, Yeah you are. You're gonna she's gonna take you over there and you're gonna get it. So that went on for a for a minute. My grandmother was listening to all this in the kitchen. She called me in there. And she said to me, you, you let him do that for you. You let him do that for you. Let me tell you what Jesus wants to do for you this morning. He wants to drink that cup of God's wrath for you. Because you're not able to bear it. And He is able because of who He is. And He was willing, not that you should perish, but that you would come to repentance. And the only thing standing between you and that us is you. Do you believe this morning? Don't just believe. Obey. If you just believe, but you don't obey, the wrath of God abides on you, John 3.36. If you believe this morning, then confess Him as He is in truth. God, the Son of God, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, the only hope that we have is his person, His work, Christ and crucified. Confess Him this morning as He is in truth. Repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ so that the blood that He shed as the propitiatory sacrifice for you sin, your sins, so that that blood can cleanse your conscience so that you can go from being dead in your sins and trespasses to being alive in Him. So that when He comes again, because of His great love for you, and because of His grace, and because of your faith in Him, experience being delivered from the wrath that is still to come. On the day of judgment, will you, will you drink? Or will you allow Jesus to drink at Calvary? Let Jesus do that for you. If we can help you obey the gospel this morning, won't you come while we stand and sing about the forgiving power of the blood of Jesus. Blood is sufficient to cleanse even your sins while we stand and while we sing.